I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 34 as we continue our study in this book. Just want to remind you, some of you who have come in the midst of the study, or you may have missed some weeks, you can go to the Green Pines website. If you go on the homepage, there is at the bottom a media page. There you can find, I believe, the entire series of Genesis on, on podcasts where you can catch up with anything that you may have missed. This chapter is unique in all of the Bible. Uh, outside of the book of Esther, it is the only chapter where there is no mention of God. Not once is his name mentioned. And different from Esther, in this chapter, there is no evidence of God's handiwork in this passage. There is no indication of his moving in the providence of, of events. It is a chapter it is an event apart from God, and it is a terrible chapter. It is a story of rape, and it's a story of genocide. Genocide is a terrible thing. It is heinous to witness and behold. When we were in Belarus, we visited a village called Hatim, and this village Really, it's a memorial to a village. It's no longer a village. But if you were to go there, you would find all throughout the countryside chimneys. And if you were to look at these chimneys, you'd see the bells chiming from the wind blowing. And you'll see a list of names of a family who once lived at this site. The father, the mother, the children, and all the various ages. But when Nazi Germany came and occupied this country... They thought that it would be more efficient to, uh, well, control this land if they greatly reduced the population. And so they went into this village and rounded up all these people that used to live in these homes and put them under one place. And there they slaughtered the entire village. One man survived. If you were to go there, you'd see a statue of this man. He survived by pretending like he was dead. And there, this statue of this rugged-looking man holding his child limp in his arms that was killed in this point. If you were to look at another part of this village, what used to be a village, you'd find stationed throughout this countryside little uh, memorials. And there within this memorial would be a, a glass a, uh, encasement where there was soil. And there, written in Russian, would be the name of a village that once was and no more. You'd see this throughout. In fact, you'd find over 140 of these memorials to a village that once was. You would walk up to the top of a hill on this village site, and there you would see a different memorial to the various places and the children that were killed. Nazi Germany decided to take these Children use them for their experimentation, and then when too weak, they used them for their dogs. If you were to go into Israel, you'd see the Holocaust Memorial. And there in this memorial, one of the more poignant places is the memorial to the children that were killed. You would go into a dark room, and there in this dark room with the various images displayed, you would hear nothing but the sounds of names listing out one name after another. Six million names of children killed 
under this time. You'd go out and you see the unfinished steel rebar and the concrete still sticking up are the the steel girders coming up, cut off short to represent that these lives were cut short. Any way you look at it, it's hard to understand. And we cannot look and say, oh, that was just history. Because undoubtedly, somewhere, a child is crying. Because the mother is being killed, a father is being killed. A child's cry is being muffled short. Because no doubt, somewhere, a child is being killed. How do you explain a society like that? And the question that often comes, and the question often comes in the Jewish Holocaust survivors is, where is God? How is it that we live in a world like this? This is a question that posed to Ann Lotz right after 9-11 uh, by the news media. Asked, where is God on 9-11? She responded, very wisely, poignantly, saying, you know, God is a gentleman. Why is it that we ask where is God when for the last 10, 15 years we have actively pursued in our society to push out the influence of God? Why is it now we ask where is God? You see, sometimes God will give us exactly what we ask for. And it is heinous to see mankind Walking apart from God. Here in this chapter, there is no mention of God, and in its place is huge crime. And what's it all the more poignant about this and indicting is that we're not looking at the Hivites doing this, the Amorites, the Canaanites, these who do not worship God, but the ones who are committing the genocide are, is none other of Jacob's tribe. This is the one that we just saw wrestling with God and a pre, you know, God in pre incarnate form and holding on to, to the very form of God and saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. And God obliges him and says, I will change your name from Jacob into Israel. This is the one that God's blessed all along his life and given him material blessings and, and now family blessings and is about to open up doors to, to go back into his land. He's protected from Laban. He's protected from Esau. He's done all this protection. And here this one who's had God's hand on him, their family just wipes out a city. Well, be encouraged. That's what we read today. I cannot give you the five characteristics of God that we see in this passage. And I, I cannot give you the principles of truths that come from this. All I can give you are warnings. So stand as we read together this warning from God. Genesis 34. Now Dina, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dina, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamar, saying, Give me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he defiled his daughter Dina. But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Hamar the father of Shechem went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. 
But Hamor spoke with him, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us, and give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. And you shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. And Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamar deceitfully, because he defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we'll give our daughters to you, and you will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But you will not listen to us and be circumcised. Then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamar and Hamar's son Shechem, and the young men did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamar and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of this city listened to Hamar and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brother, took their swords, came against the city while it felt secure, and killed all the males. They killed Hamar and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dina out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, and all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives. All that was in the house they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You've brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. The Canaanites and the Perizzites, my numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? You may be seated. In this passage, I believe it warns us of four forces that were at work in Jacob and their family's life, as well that is infective in our life as well. And we need to see where it will take us. So let's look first at the very first verse. Dina, the daughter of Leah. It's unusual that the, a person is identified by their mother in the Bible. Why is it that Leah is mentioned? It tells us, one, that this is the daughter of the unfavorite one. The, the one that uh, Jacob got duped into marrying. Uh, he really wanted to marry Rachel. He loved Rachel. And all the descendants of Rachel... He favors, Jacob favors. He loves Joseph, and later he loves Benjamin. And these are the ones that he leans toward. And so Dina is the daughter of this one that doesn't get the special attention. But also reminds us and lets us know why Simeon and Levi act out the way they do. Simeon and Levi are the two oldest sons of Leah, the two oldest brothers of Dina, natural brothers by same mother and same father. If you remember, Dina was the youngest uh, on Leah's side of uh, uh, eight, she had seven 
older brothers. All right. Not to mention the stepbrothers that also claimed her. She was, as the Bible tells us, recorded the only daughter and the baby among them. You got that dynamic? All right. You know what that means? You've got a bunch of older brothers that's willing to step up for her and look out for their little sister. And so that's the dynamic. But notice, she born to Jacob and she went out to see the women of the land. That phrase, went out to see the women of, of the land, has somewhat of a negative connotation about that. It's not just went out to see and meet daughters and meet friends. But when it has that phrase, women of the land, it seems to imply that these are women who have inherited and follow the system of the land. They, they follow a pattern, a cultural pattern. So it's not just these are the local girls, but that, that phrase seems to imply that these are the local girls that act like the local cultural. Uh, and so that's uh, a little bit of a negative connotation involved in this. But nonetheless, this young, and she would have been a young teenage girl at this point, wanted to hang out and be with these girls. Now, what's unusual about this? Well, in biblical times, girls of marriageable age, and though she was a young teenager, she would have been of marriageable age, were not permitted to leave the tents of the people to go out visiting without a chaperone. Interesting, we find that that's exactly what happens here. Jacob is not fulfilling his role of being a protector over his daughter, and no doubt he is succumbing to the desires of his daughter of wanting to be out and hang out with the girls of the society around her. Um, and so we see the, an absence of Jacob. It could be that she was maybe even doing this outside of Jacob's uh, perspective and uh, behind her back, but nonetheless, there is a succumbing to desires, and we've got to watch this, a succumbing to desires that overcomes spiritual vigilance overcoming spiritual vigilance. And we see this not only with Jacob here and not being the protector that he should be, uh, but also we see this occur with Shechem, who follows his desires, sees her, and then the Bible says, uh, gives us the, the understanding that he indeed raped her. It was not, it was not, let me repeat, Dina's fault in the rape. It was Shechem's, his responsibility to control himself. He did not do so. And so he rapes her and humiliates her. And something very interesting occurs here. Most times when this happens, uh, because it was lust that drives a person, and once lust is satisfied, they really have no concern for this person. Generally, it's, it's a detesting of the victim. We see this later in 2 Samuel when a rape occurs there, that this one who did it detests her and despises the victim. But in this case, uh, Shechem seems to have a love that goes out toward this young girl. And we see this verse 3, that his soul is drawn to Dina, the daughter of Jacob. And he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamar, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. But one thing I just want you to know is that there is a coming, a weakening to the desires, perhaps of the daughter. Uh, we see this with Shechem as well, where there was no longer a spiritual vigilance of their children. Parents, we are the guardians spiritually, not just physically, not just intellectually, not just emotionally, but spiritually for our children as well. It is upon us to pray for our children. It is upon us to use good sense, spiritual sense, to know who is a good person to be with, a good place to hang out, and when is a good time to go out. Let me just speak in a practical nature. Curfews are not a bad thing. I thought they were once, you know. I remember my parents, they, they, they had me coming in at 10.30. Later, as I got a little bit older, 11. 
Uh, then my last year living with them, they said, okay, 11.30, because you know, we know you have to drop someone off and come back. And, and I just, I hated that because all my friends, all my church friends, could, they had much later curfews. And I was like, you know, dad, mom, why did, why did we do this? And they would say, well, you know what? You're our children. We, we don't have influence over them, but you're our child and need to know that nothing good occurs after 11 o'clock. I was like, oh, you know what? I can think of quite a few good things that occur after 11 o'clock, but they knew something I did not. It was, you know, it's interesting. Just a week ago, I was talking to someone that they had a conversation with a policeman and they shared with them that the, from their uh, work, they found that after 11 o'clock, uh, 90% of the people driving are driving under the influence of some sort. Whoa, mom and dad knew what they were talking about. You know, and, and, and it protected me uh, from being in places, and not just physically, but spiritually as well. One of the things that we are to pray for is good friends for our children, our grandchildren. Pray for good friends that will come alongside and help them. You know, there's a time when children will stop paying attention to their parents' influence as much and start paying more attention to their peers' influence. So what do you do? You try your best and you pray for a good atmosphere, a good group of friends for your children. And you teach your children how to discern a good friend from a bad friend and how to be a good friend and not a bad friend. This becomes a point of emphasis because we are to be the ones to protect our children. We cannot you know, create a bubble around them uh, and hope that they'll live in that bubble, but we've got to teach them how to live in this world, how to be a good friend and discern good, godly friends from others. I remember, I'll never forget, I had a, a roommate in college, he came into college wanting to be a missionary uh, and felt the call of God in his life and that and, and decided that uh, he would enter into a, a fraternity and pledge in a fraternity. And, uh, uh, you know, we kind of warned, warned him and said, be careful, be careful, be careful. And, and he before long stopped having the fellowship of spiritual uh, good friends and no longer participate in church. And, and he said, you know what, I'm going to be a chaplain. And he was the chaplain of this fraternity and, and he became the designated driver for this fraternity. And it, it kept on going. I'll never forget the October evening on the snow. And we got a call from one of his fraternity brothers claiming that he was going to beat him up because he was flirting with his, his girlfriend. And, and when my, my buddy came home, he came home drunk. And I'm, I'm thinking later on, I asked him the next day, I said, you know what? How does your plan work up into Rachel? Or that, it's, you, you feel like you're being a good influence now? And the problem was is he had surrounded himself with folks that would not encourage him in the right way and distanced himself from others who would. And so we've got this idea of, of, of being surrounded in this area. And no longer is Jacob being spiritually vigilant and there's a question mark of whether he ever was. And so rape occurs. Shechem wants to marry this girl. Verse 5. Now Jacob heard that he defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with, his, with him. But his sons were with him to Rachel. Or Jacob held his peace until they came. Isn't that an interesting reaction? Your daughter? Your only daughter? And he holds his peace. I wonder if he would have done the same if it happened to Rachel. Or if it happened to Joseph. You get the idea that he wouldn't. That there was a favoritism that made him apathetic toward the plight of his daughter. Beware when pragmatism, or beware when apathy overcomes 
moral outrage. Apathy, overcoming moral outrage, those things that he should have been incensed and angry about. He said, oh, okay, well, I'll just wait till it's politically a correct time and I have got the advantage. And he just thinks through this and it seems to be an apathetic error. And his brothers discern this because the brothers take the lead. They take the lead on how to get vengeance back. And the problem is the brothers do not have a moral compass and they get unleashed upon Shechem, the city. When Jacob, and it should have been Jacob, taking the lead and making retribution and getting things right. Jacob does not. It's one of the most insulting things is to be apathetic toward the plight of others. Because it is based on a self-interest that I don't want to be concerned with the needs of others because I'm so concerned with me. And if I step out here, then it might put me in danger. One of the hardest things in genocide is that there are always those around that knew better, but did not do better because it was inconvenient. Nonetheless, you've got this going on with Jacob. Beware of the apathy that overcomes the moral outrage that should have been there. And so the brothers, uh, they, they lashed out when they hear this. You notice in verse 7, the sons of Jacob come in the field. As soon as they heard it, the men were indignant and very angry. They step up where Jacob should have. Because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's brother. For such a thing must not be done. Moses has kind of given his commentary here uh, that this is a wrong thing. Verse 8, Hamar says, well, look, you know what? I want to do, I want to do whatever it takes to make her my wife. Let's, in fact, let's make marriages together. See that in verse 9? Let's, let's be one tribe together. And let's just form together. Let us marry your daughters and you can marry our daughters. Contrary, we find later on, to the direction of God, Deuteronomy 7.3, God told them, don't marry with the unbelieving group of the other nations. Joshua 23.12, do not marry with the unbelieving group of the other nations. And Ezra 9.14, again, it's repeated, do not marry with the unbelieving group of the other nations. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 and 16, he gets to the heart of it and says, do not marry un- the unbeliever. And then in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world that is unbelieving. In other words, do not get yourself so aligned with unbelievers and so united with them that it corrupts you and corrupts the seed that comes from you. And so we see throughout Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament that there is a clear indication that it's not against interracial marriage. What it is against is uh, interbelief marriage throughout is when you think, oh, it's OK. I'll just, you know, I'll marry someone that does not follow Jesus Christ and I'll be OK. We see throughout Bible Throughout the word of God, God's uh, instruction and warning against this. But nonetheless, here Shechem saying and his father saying, let's do this. Let's 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 have marriages together. And verse 10, you shall dwell with us and, and this will be good, profitable for us. And you will benefit financially from this and we will benefit financially from you. And so in verse 12, let's let's get a good bride price. Whatever you ask, I want her to be my wife. The sons of Jacob respond. Not Jacob, the sons of Jacob. Not Dina's brothers, but the son of Jacob. Why? Because they bear the resemblance of Jacob in their response. All right? They've seen Jacob do something, and now they're about to take it to another degree. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father, Hamor, 
deceitful to a degree. That's been the trademark of Jacob, hasn't it? All throughout of what we've seen, that there's been deceit mixed in with what he's done. In fact, we find that's kind of the meaning of his name. And so, where did the brothers learn this? Where did the sons learn this? They've seen dear dad do this to Laban. They've seen dad do this recently to Esau. This has been a trademark. So, you know what? This is what we've learned. And so, we're just going to take it up a notch. And that's what sons do. They'll find the things that we tolerate and allow. And they'll take it as a mandate. We get to a degree, degree that we did not go. And we reap a whirlwind. So if you will, it's kind of like the sons of Jacob answered Shechem, his father, Jacobly, deceitfully, Jacobly. And how they, uh, because they defiled their sister Dina. And so here's the plan. Here's the plot. Okay. You know, we're good followers of God. And we're very devout in our life. Some, a code of conduct. You want to be with us? You got to follow our code. You, we have a covenant with God that if anyone that's in our family, you're circumcised. We do that with the slaves. We do that with any male child that comes in. You want to be a part of us? All right. You be circumcised. And that was the covenant of God. But they took the thing of God and used it as a vessel, a tool to destroy somebody. Friends, I'm telling you, we do the same thing. We do the same thing. In our life. And we squash somebody. And give them not looks of love. But looks of disdain. Because they don't meet our conduct. And we can kill them. Spiritually and emotionally. And so here they take this. It's kind of like saying. Here take this communion cup. And let us know we're one together. And, and in the communion cup's poison. All right, And you kill them with it. And that's kind of what they're doing. And so they, they give out this plan. And they agree to the intermarriage idea. They don't let the father know what the real plan is. But here's the sad truth about this. Jacob, not knowing their plan, hears the proposition about intermarriage, and Jacob does not resist. He does not speak up against this plot. Why is that bad? Because Jacob knows better. Let me remind you of the words that were given to Jacob. Instructions to Jacob given by his father Isaac in Genesis chapter 28, verse 1. Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him and said, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. In Genesis chapter 24, verse 1, Abraham did something similar with his father Isaac, with, with Jacob's father Isaac. And it said, Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Abraham said to his servant and the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. Remember, that was a euphemistic term uh, to referring to a more personal body part. He says, uh, we're going to do an oath here. That's a serious oath. And he says, I make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son, from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. Why? Why all this? Because in Genesis 15, God gave a prophecy to Abraham. And then he said, they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, these people that live in the lands, they're going to get worse and worse in their morality. Don't intermarry with them. Jacob knows all this. He was sent... All the way back to Laban because he wasn't the American Canaanite woman. And so when the proposition comes, oh, let's all intermarry. Let's become one tribe. Jacob doesn't say a word. Jacob is the one that knows that God has given blessings to his descendants, that his descendants are to be separate so that the Messiah could come 
the one who would bless the nations could come through his descendants. And at risk is the very line that God has blessed. And Jacob says absolutely nothing. What has happened? Let me just give you a word of warning. Do I think the third and most powerful force right here? We've seen already the apathy that overcomes moral outrage. We've seen this coming to desires to overcome the spiritual villages. But what we see here throughout this passage is a pragmatism. A pragmatism that overcomes spiritual purity. A pragmatism that overcomes spiritual purity. Let me just bring your attention to the fact of where they're at. All right? They're in, they're in Shechem. All right? God had told them, uh, told uh, from the very beginning, that he was to go back to the land of his kindred. In Genesis chapter 28, verse 21, Jacob made a vow to go back to his father's house. He made a vow to God that he would go back to Bethel. He's not in Bethel yet. He's not in his father's house yet. He's in the northern part of what we know of Israel today in Shechem. Why is he there? He crossed, remember after the encounter with Esau, he crossed the Jordan River and he was looking for a place where there's plenty of nourishment for his livestock. He wanted to go somewhere where his investments would grow. Purely financial. Purely financial. And he's been there for a while now. He's not yet followed through with what God's told him to do, what he himself made a vow to do. Why? It just wasn't very pragmatic. Don't you know that if he was to go down south, there wasn't the grasslands, there wasn't the water, there is a desert. He's going to lose his investments. Let me just tell you something. When you follow God, rare will it be pragmatic. Rare will it be of a financial benefit. Every once in a while it may happen, but friends, do not let that be the indicator of what you do and do not do when it comes to following God. And now here he is, and the proposition is made to him that if he lets his daughter marry and and lets his tribe intermingle, there will be a financial benefit to to him. And if he stands up now, well, man, that's going to be really difficult for, for Jacob. Pragmatism rules the day of her spiritual purity, of keeping his heart right with God. He lets it drop because it's so inconvenient. Now, Hamar, Shechem, think, hey, you know what? That's pretty good. That's not too bad of a price. And not only does he get circumcised, he convinces because he's honorable in the city to get all the other guys circumcised. That's persuasive right there, you know? That's persuasive. But it's, it's, the, it's the drive for economics. And so they do it. And so on the third day when they're sore, here comes two boys in their 20s, Levi, Simeon, the two oldest. And they go and they kill Shechem, his father. They get Dina, who evidently has been there the entire time, bring her back, but they also kill every single man there. And then the other brothers join in. And here they come. And they take, oh, there's no man here? Oh, look at that livestock. Let's get that livestock. Look at this furnishings. Let's get this furnishings. Look at this clothes. Let's get the, look at that wife. Let's get the wife. Look at the children. Let's get the children. And they plunder the city. Genocide. And all that remains, they bring back. Jacob. He's got some sense of a moral compass about him. I mean, he's the one who's wrestled with God. And then he says, you know, guys, why have you done this? You notice, 
Verse 30, you brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And, and my numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should we treat our sister like a prostitute? Vengeance was the order of the day. Think about that. They've been ruled by pragmatism. They've succumbed to their own desires and no longer spiritually vigilant. They're apathetic, uh, less involves their self-interest. And so consequently, when real temptation comes, vengeance is there and they are ruled by vengeance as opposed to waiting on God. Friends, you live in the same world that we live in, that I live in, and there will be damage done to you. What do you do when there is injustice done to you? Well, the Bible says throughout the New Testament, if you suffer an injustice, you don't take it into your own hands, according to Romans chapter 12, verse 17 through 21. But you wait on God, who is the God of vengeance and God of justice. When things are wrong done to you, there is a confronting that we do in a biblical manner, according to Matthew chapter 18. When things are wrong done to us, there is a reporting of criminal matters to the governing authorities, because God's put government there for that purpose. But then when it's all said and done, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, you entrust yourself to the God who judges justly and you wait on him. They don't do that because they're not prepared to do that. And they take vengeance. But notice Jacob's reaction. He says, you know what? This is really going to be bad on me. This is going to be really bad on the tribe. These are pretty good questions, but they're not the best questions. Why isn't Jacob asking, how's my daughter Dina? Let me talk with her. There's no mention of her. How about, guys, how could you scandalize God's covenant of circumcision? There seems to be no concern with the holiness of the covenant of God. And there's no concern. Guys, how is it that you've got yourself to a spiritual state where you are murdering these men? He doesn't ask that question. He doesn't ask, what are we going to do with all these widows? What do we do with these little children who are now fatherless? He doesn't ask those questions. Why? Because he's being very pragmatic and looking out for number one. How are we going to get away with this? They're going to wipe us out. How did this one get in this state? Isn't this the same guy that walked with God, or that, that confronted God and, and wrestled with God and said, God, don't let me go until you bless me and he had the name changed? Yeah. And next thing you know, he's wiping out because of the seemingly indifference, selfish perspective that he's had and his whole family has. We're about to find out a lot about the descendants of Jacob here. Let me just bring out something. You know, when, when, when we go to the ocean, you'll find out something. You go out swimming. I've, I've done some surfing. And when you go out that, go surfing and, and you're out there in the water, if you, if you don't realize it and you don't have some point of reference of from which you walked into the ocean with, you'll get coasted you'll get taken a long ways away and you may be having a jolly old time but next thing you know you walk up on the beach and you look for your stuff and you only see it in sight the only thing you can see is a is a motel way off in the distance and that's no fun when you're tired and you're worn out and you're hungry and you're carrying a big old surfboard and the wind's blowing and you're trying to hold that thing down they think oh my goodness i gotta walk what happened I had no point of reference, and I didn't realize what force was at work. Now, if you want to stay in that same area, you got to look at where you walked in at, have a point of reference, and you got to realize there's an undertow. 
And you never knew how strong that undertow was until you started resisting it. Because you wanted to stay in that same area. And so with all your might, you're paddling and you're paddling and you're paddling. And you wear yourself out just to stay in that same area. And you feel the full force of the undertow. But when you come in, you're pretty close to where you came out at. Once you stop struggling against the undertow, it's a lot easier. But it takes you somewhere you do not want to go. Let me tell you, you and I live in a world where there is an undertow. It responds to our selfish desires and our selfish nature. It's surrounding us all around. It is an undertow pulling us away from the things of God, away from the priorities of God, away from a relationship with God. And it will pull you and take you somewhere where you would not dream that you would go. You will do things that you never thought you were capable of doing, but you are. And what is the only resistance to it? Is when you realize, God, I need a moral compass. I need something to which I can hold on to. And then with all my might, with all the strength that God gives me, let me resist this world. You know what holiness is? Holiness is not living such a perfect life that there's no sin. Holiness is understanding that there's sin around you, there's sin in you, and that by the strength and grace of God, you make a commitment. I will resist it for the rest of my life. I will never stop resisting the undertow of this world. And I will hold on. I will hold on dearly to Jesus Christ. You know why Jesus said, if you abide in me, abide in me. If you do not abide in me, you can do nothing. And so he says, hold on to me and the relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why Paul, when he said in his own life, he says, I'm going to keep on pursuing. I'm going to forget the things that are behind me. And I'm going to pursue that which God has held on to me for. Notice that he says, Verse 12, Philippians chapter 3. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider I've made it my own, but one thing I do. Forget what lies behind, strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to that which we obtained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. If Paul did that, we should do the same. We should do the same. God has given you the strength and the power. And let me ask you, is there anywhere in your life where you feel resistance? If you don't feel resistance, it's because you're not following Jesus. Rest assured, this world does not go along with Jesus' plan. I call you to a struggle. Here's the sad reality. It doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter what religious experience is. It doesn't matter if you've seen a vision of God. It doesn't matter if you wrestled with Jesus right here, hand in hand, grappled with him in flesh. It doesn't matter. Jacob did the same. You can't live on the past. Only thing that matters is that today you say, Jesus, I'm yours. Give me the strength to resist this world. I depend on you. Is that your prayer? Not just today, but every day. Because if you don't, it will take you somewhere you never dreamed you'd go. Exhibit A, Jacob and his sons wiping out a city. Are you capable? If he's capable, you're capable. I invite you. To surrender to God. Resist this world. Let's stand as we sing together.